Well, what I want to do is just kind of shift gears here for a second as we start to think about the message as we move into Matthew 21. And I want you to think about this because this is an entry point for God into the city of Jerusalem. Jesus, both fully man and both fully God, has now come to Jerusalem and he enters into this city. That was called to be the place where the king would rule. So I want you to think with regard to yourself for a second. And I want you to, to change the gears for a moment and ask when it comes to entering into relationship, as you're in relationship and maybe you're entering into a situation where you have been treated unfairly. And in some way, it, it could be a whole bunch of things that have gone on in it, but you feel you've been wronged. You, uh, you feel maybe you've been disrespected. You've maybe loaned out money and given out your stuff and it was trashed. When you borrowed maybe money, it was actually stolen. When you have sought to be with this person, you have felt like they just want to get stuff from you. How do you enter into those situations where you have every right in the world to come in with a sense of feeling outraged, feeling a sense of injustice? You see, this was really the expectation that I think the people of Israel and the religious leaders of that day were expecting when God would come, when he would show up and is his Messiah, when Jesus was coming into this city. This is really what the religious world was waiting for. This is what I think the woman at the well expected. This is what the traitor and cheat Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, when he was up in the tree, know he he deserved. Is what the uh, self-righteous men who stood around that that adulterer laying in the dirt were waiting to hear from Jesus. Peter, who denied Jesus, and the disciples who deserted Jesus, expected that God would come back at its best just rejecting him, and its worst being really angry. And I ask you to think about this for a second because they were expecting an angry God marching in design with guns blazing, followed by a posse of angels and righteous people who had come to basically blast this world because of its sin, its disrespect, all the things you would experience in a relationship where you've been wronged. They expected God to come back like that. It's almost this Rambo kind of like God experience. That he would come penetrating into this world in such a way that he would, he would make those things which were wrong right and make people pay. But to their surprise, that's not what they got. 
you need to understand when we come to this passage of Scripture in Matthew 21, if you don't understand what was being expected in that day, when you don't understand, it's very similar to how you may feel about someone who's dissed you, who's someone who is not respected or cared for you, or taken your property and, 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 and trashed it, or taken money and stolen from you, who has hurt you maybe again and again and again and again, they've had disregard for you. This is the kind of a thing that they were thinking about when God was coming to His people to this creation to those whom he has placed on this planet that's what they're expecting they were expecting him to enter in to jerusalem in that way now i want you to read what it says in matthew 21 verses 1 through 11 as jesus enters the royal city and he receives a royal welcome it's a very interesting thing he says in verse 1 as they approached jerusalem and came to bethage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And this is what the prophet Zechariah says. Say to the daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, and the foal on a donkey. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went ahead of him. And those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowd's answer is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand in this narrative how we can bring the very um, narratives and stories of our life around this in a way that you will teach us what it means to be like you. Spirit of God, I pray, speak through me and open our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. This little narrative is really a powerful glimpse in the heart of God. In fact, to really understand this well, you need to understand that this historical narrative, this piece of history written by Matthew and recorded by the other gospel writers, is Jesus' way of doing a drama for us. It's actually an acted-out parable. Often Jesus would tell stories to help people see who he was. He would often tell them parables to help people understand who God was, and then he would want them to see their relationship to God through that parable. Or he would tell these kind of stories, and as he'd tell these stories, you would be listening and you'd be trying to understand, now, this must be the Father, and, and this maybe he's referring to himself here, and, and maybe he's referring to some people here, and where do I fit in this story? So whenever you see those parables, you begin to ask yourself, where am I in that story? Well, in this story, this is not just a historical narrative that tells you what happened by the facts that occurred that day. This is an acted out parable. Jesus intentionally was trying to tell them a story using scripture they had known through Zechariah and others prophets. 
that they might see themselves in the story and understand who God is. So first, as we get into this, I want to kind of lay a little bit of the background. You have to think back here for a second. What was going on now at this point in the ministry of Jesus? Around chapter 16, we started to see that Jesus began to share these predictions that he was going to die on the cross. His passion predictions. And then he first begins to share this. He says very clearly to them with his determination, his face set like flint, I have to go up to Jerusalem. My whole life, my whole coming is based on what's going to happen there in Jerusalem. So as we looked at last week, chapter 20 or a couple of weeks ago in verse 17, Jesus once again shares his third passion prediction and he shows how determined he is. It says, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, and as he was walking, he, he, he says, I want to pull you aside. The crowd at this point, this is probably just a week or two weeks before Jesus was going to the cross. And as he's walking on his way to, to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, he says, I'm going to pull you guys aside. The crowd is all here. And as he gets them to the side, he says to these guys, here's what's going to happen. I have to go up to Jerusalem. He shares it, all that's going to happen. And then he sets his, his course once again. And it says in some of the Gospels that they looked at him with amazement, other with fear. He was so determined to go to, the, to Jerusalem. But what is interesting now when we get to chapter 21 is no longer is it just to head up to Jerusalem. He's actually at Jerusalem. Now things shift and his whole next week is all about a walk to the cross. Matthew 20 ends with Jesus leaving Jericho. He stops there for just a second. He heals two people who are blind and then he makes his turn and he goes again with determination up to Jerusalem. And he's walking with thousands of pilgrims all around them, making their way to the holy city for the Passover that's going to be celebrated in just a few days. And we're coming into this final week, and we come into this final week, we are in this place where we are walking to the cross, the ultimate act of sacrifice and service that Jesus does on behalf of people. And throughout the world, as you think about it right now, as I'm preaching today, and as it's be preaching all around the world at different hours because of the, the time, you know, the way the sun moves and the earth, and all throughout the day and in the weeks to come, there are going to be pilgrims like you and me who will be making their way to the cross. They will be heading towards Holy Week. We are, in a sense, in our calendar beginning to march towards Holy Week. And I thought it was interesting that we could kind of, at this point, just stop and pause. And I want to ask you about... This season of Holy Week that will be coming up. You know, so often in the evangelical church, I don't think we do a real good job of preparing people for Easter. It's just like all of a sudden it's here and you go, oh, Easter's here. And one of the things I want us to do this year as a, as a body is to really say, what does it mean for us to move towards Holy Week? I want you to be thinking about this as we take these narratives and we begin to look in the weeks to come. We're going to actually go through in a series that will be starting here in just a few weeks is, is called Walk to the Cross. And I want you to begin to think about it. as I move towards the cross, what is it that God is calling me to sacrifice? How does he want me to, to serve him in ways and, and understand my relationship with him in ways that, are, that really draw me closer to him? This, this year, what we're going to begin to do on February 22nd, Ash Wednesday, through April 4th. And you're going to go, oh boy, we're getting real high church here. Well, just follow me for a second. February 22nd through April 4th, every Wednesday night, we're going to have just a simple meal and read just some scripture. It's just going to be a simple 
opportunity for us to come together in that area on Wednesday nights to prepare ourselves as we move towards the cross. And I wanted just to pause for a second because people hear words like Lent and, and you kind of go, what is that all about? Well, every year, Christian followers all around the world mark 40 days, that Ash Wednesday up through Palm Sunday, those 40 days, where they actually sacrifice something in order to more fully focus on Jesus and what it means to, to follow him and understand what he sacrificed for them. And for a lot of people, it's just empty ritual. It's just something that they've done because they grew up with it with no understanding why. Some of you actually remember that, right? You came from those kind of experiences. Anybody here? A little bit of understanding? Well, let me just share with you just quickly. I believe Lent is really a time for followers of Jesus to reorient their priorities. The purpose is to give up something that could become a distraction from your relationship with God. It's to intentionally give it up, deny or sacrifice in order to serve God and serve others more fully. And I want you to be thinking about what would that mean for me? For many people, it means something like giving up TV or maybe novels that they are reading or Facebook or video games kits. It means that giving those things that take your time away from God and replacing that time possibly by reading God's word. Or maybe taking time to pray. Or taking time to take scripture and just meditate it and, and memorize it and, and dwell on it. it. It's basically removing something that might distract you in order that you might put priorities on what it means to really know God. And for some people it means carving out something and intentionally reminds them of their sins. Like giving up sweets. Anybody want to do that? Specialty coffees. Or red meat, or you, you can name those things, in order kind of to remind themselves that there are these kind of things that, that, that tempt me, draw me, and, and what is it, God, around my life that I need to pay attention to that calls me to more fully focus my heart on you? Well, Jesus is on this way to the cross, and we're going to be on the way to the cross. And I invite you to think about, as we move towards this, uh, this February 22nd, how will you participate on this walk to the cross? Matthew 21.1, it says, He came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. And as they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. That was a Roman military road that was from Jericho to Jerusalem, and it would on its way past Bethphage. And Bethphage, if you look at it today, is really just a suburb in the sense of Jerusalem. You have Jerusalem here on a hill, and then just before it, you have another hill, which is Bethphage and, and also the Mount of Olives. And it would be interesting when the pilgrims would be making their, their walk to this city up to Jerusalem, you would come to this one hill, and when you'd come to this hill, you would have this incredible, magnificent sight looking from the east to the west of this city. And so when you would see in the morning, you would see the sun come on, and you would see, and if you've ever, some of you have been to Jerusalem, you'll see that temple, you'll see the, 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 the just a gold glimmer of the sun on it. It's this beautiful, beautiful sight. And Jesus would often in that week when he was there, that, that walk to the cross time from that Palm Sunday to the week of the cross itself he would go into the city and then come back out and go into the city at night and come back out where he would stay and often he would go to the mount of olives and he would pray and in that place he would pray and he would see the city and look over the city and pray for these people and so as you go on in matthew 21 1 through 3 says jesus when he came to this place he sent 
two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and her colt by her, and untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. What I want you to notice, this was a purposeful, intentional thing that, that Jesus was doing. It wasn't to manipulate the crowd, but, but as I said before, he was acting out a parable. He was going to signify for them in this walking into the city, entering into this place of Jerusalem, the royal city, he was going to signify for them what his mission was all about, why he came. So verses 4 through 5, Jesus demonstrates that God makes good on his promise. He actually knows what Zechariah says, and it says here that this took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And when they saw this and saw him coming in, you can tell by their response that they knew he was proclaiming himself to be the king, that he was following in the line of David, and that he was making a statement. Their response shows it. Look at what it says. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They went and did just as he said, so that he could act out this drama in their midst, in a sense. And they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees, spread them on the road. And the crowd went ahead of him, and those that followed him shouted, which shows they knew exactly what he was doing. They knew what Zechariah had promised. They knew that this king was to come, and they were expecting him. In fact, in that time, they had so many false impostors, they kept wondering, how do we know? Is this the one? And the crowd began to shout as he gets on this, this, this fall, in this, this new cult of a donkey, and he, he rides into the city, Lined with people, throwing their cloaks down, waving their branches, and shouting Hosanna, which is an exclamation of praise, but it's more than that. It's an exclamation of hope that in this one is the one who has come to make all things right. And they shout out Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the anointed one. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus, the future King, the Son of David, the one in the Lord's name, comes. And he does this intentionally. It's typical in the day that a king would ride into town like that and make his announcement and proclamation that he's the new king. Happens if you read the Old Testament. You'll see when people were crowned king and and Hebron or other places, David, they would come into that place and they would acknowledge that he was the king. I remember when I was um, at Wheaton College and had the opportunity um, at our college for President Gerald Ford come to speak. And it was a big deal. I mean, I couldn't believe how invested everyone was in making things look good for the president when he arrived. And I remember one of the roads, the main road that would take him through through the town of Wheaton and then get him to Edmund Chapel where he would be. They went and they repaved the entire road. They actually went and got new curbing. They put in new brushes. They, They groomed everything on the way. They actually painted some of the homes. They made it look incredibly wonderful. And guess what they did? The Secret Service took him another route. It was really not a very pretty sight. 
But he gets to the college, and the college himself actually went where the room he would only spend about 10, 15 minutes. They put in, they had new couches, new carpeting, they repainted the walls. Everything looked just incredible for the president who was just addressing the students in the town. That's the kind of imagery you have. Here is Jesus, the king. He's coming, and they're excited, and there's a fervor and excitement that this king is about to enter in. And when people began to get wind of it in, in Jerusalem itself, it says in, in, in John that the crowds began to come rushing out to him. So it wasn't just the people now going with him. It was the crowd beginning to hear, did you hear the kings? He's, got, he's actually, he's riding in. And they started to surround him. So it began to swell. So the closer he came to Jerusalem, the more the crowd began to gather. But when people started shouting these things, there was something that was unexpected. But they, they didn't quite catch. Jesus actually did something in this drama, in this parable, to surprise them all. He, he didn't say, oh no, I'm not the king. He didn't tell them to stop their shouting and praises. He didn't say, you know, no, you got it wrong. I'm not the one who's coming in the name of the Lord. All those things are true. But he did something that surprised them that they didn't quite understand. And he entered in a way that surprised them as he rode in on a foal of a donkey. And what is interesting about that is that when a king would come into town and they meant that they were coming in peace, that they came to have friendship, they would ride in on the foal of a donkey. When a king was coming to actually present himself as the one who was the ruler who would would come into this rebellious place and he would quench all that was going on, he would ride in on a war horse. And Zacharias says it, and for some reason, the people of that day, and I just tell us when it comes to when we try and understand what God's doing even today, we, it's really not easy sometimes to look at Scripture and say, well, yeah, this is exactly what's going on. Because they could not put together two things, that Jesus would come, the anointed one is king, and he would come as a suffering servant who would sacrifice his life. They just couldn't understand that. And so Jesus, as he enters in, on this lowly, humble beast of burden. Not the way a king who would come in war would enter. Surprises everybody. People who expected him to come with stern justice and vengeance. See this gentle king coming in saying, I want peace. I want friendship. I did not come to obliterate those who opposed me. I actually came to take away that which kept you separated from me. Now I want to share with you just a few thoughts on this. One is this. I really think when it comes to servanthood, when you look at this message, you see this acted out parable in this drama. One of the things we have to understand is a servant often surprises people with grace and with peace. It's not about your needs, but it's all about what God's will is. You are serving God. When it comes to that, like I said, what are the relationships you're looking at that you want to enter into and you want to enter into because of the injustice, because of what's happened, you have in your heart some anger and you want to move towards it in that way. A servant of God doesn't come in saying, I'm, you know, you've just, you've done, you know, you've hurt my rights. You've done, a servant of God looks at God and says, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? How do you want me to enter into it? What is it that when I look at this 
that you want me to understand about this person or this relationship? What is it when I look at this person? How am I to love them? Jesus came as a servant of peace. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. How are you dealing with that person who's offended you? Are you a peacemaker? Could God look at you and, and say, boy, that's a son and daughter of God. You know, one of the pieces of the armor that Paul tells us to put on whenever we get up in the morning is it says put on the form of God. And then you start with this, this belt of truth and you put on the breastplate of righteousness. Anyone know what you put on next? Your feet are to be fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The idea is that, God, you know, this morning what I'm going to do is I'm putting on the, these shoes that everywhere these shoes go, there are going to be bearers of peace. The gospel is about peace. The, the, the entry of God into this world was not to come and destroy. His whole purpose was to come and give himself as a servant, to sacrifice himself, to say, how can I love you and you and you and you and you? And any person who has offended me, how do I come and move in such a way that I can, through the Father and through the Spirit of God, move in this way to bring about that kind of peace? And I'm not here about my rights. When you, when you think about that, do you put on those, those shoes in the sense that are, do you, do you, are your feet fitted with the readiness, this idea that at the moment's notice, you're not going to be a peacekeeper. You're going to come in and make peace, which means at times when you come into it, you may have to be very honest and you may have to also confront, but you do so in such a way. It's not about trying to get at them and destroy. It's about what can we do to make this relationship right? And how do you see yourself in comparison to God himself? I mean, do you, do you see God coming to you because he's out to get you? Do you interpret the fact that bad things are happening in your life because God's really just angry with you and he's punishing you? Or do you know that Jesus, as it says, came and entered in and he made it very clear in this drama that he was entering in in order to have peace, in order to bring you to a place where you might know his heart. And walk with him. So the second thing I just want to share with you is a servant moves from fickleness to faith because they know the mission. And as the crowds responded in one sense, it revealed that they got things at one level, but they didn't get it at the deepest level. Matthew 21, 10 through 11 is that age-old question. You get to the end, it says, When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, and they asked, Who is this? People in Jesus' day and all throughout history are always asking, Who is this? Who is this Jesus? And the best they could see was the prophet who came from Nazareth in Galilee. There was still no profound understanding of Jesus' purpose and mission. And what's interesting here is they were at one point, they were shouting and, and exclaiming, save, 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 when they thought that Jesus was coming to do what they wanted for them. And the moment they saw that he wasn't, they began to start yelling, crucify. They moved from a sense of faith to a place of being fickle. And I have to share with you, you will be as fickle as a crowd until you grasp the reason that Jesus came. The reason you have been called is to be a servant. Jesus came not merely to save us from some circumstances like some genie in a bottle, but he came to save us from the sickness of our soul. What's really interesting, the crowd wanted a change of circumstances, but Jesus came to bring a change of heart.
How often when you think about it, do you see yourself in relationship to God and your faith? What is your faith really in? Is your faith in that God's going to do this for you? Or is your faith in that this God loves you so much that whatever he's doing, no matter what's going on out here, he's doing something in you. He is at work in this process and you're going to believe, even though you don't see it with your eyes, you're going to believe that there is a greater mission that's occurring right now than maybe what you want. In fact, when you think about this, the crowd wanted a change of circumstances, but Jesus came to bring a change of heart. The crowd was looking for a better political, economic, social system, and Jesus was really interested in them having a personal encounter with God. Every time you go through these situations where your eyes are drawn to move to becoming fickle and moving to doubt and beginning to move to despair and you feel these things going on because you're looking at what you've been praying for or what you want, and when you move to those kind of places, it is a great opportunity for you to recognize there's a new opportunity for you to have a personal encounter with God. That is an opportunity for you to say, God, in this... My faith is really, really foundering right now. But you know what? My faith isn't in what you're actually going to do, but my faith is in the fact that you are who you are and who you said you are. Jesus had to live that way. When he was on his way to the cross, he knew what his mission was. He knew that he was there to serve. He knew that he was to sacrifice so that he could bring people into relationship with the Father. He understood that nothing would distract him. That's why he set his face like Flint and said, I have to go to Jerusalem. But the crowd hoped that he would just create an upgrade in this life. But Jesus came to bring about a transformation in our character. And if you want to live, I really believe, a fickle roller coaster life, and I can tell you I know that experience in my life. Many times, many days where you can just go up and down. Um, the only way for you to begin to move into this place of faith and move away from that fickleness is to understand deeply that God has called you to be a servant, and in that process, He will serve you. He will love you. There's the last thing I want to share with you. A servant, and I just you need to kind of see this as we just take a moment to unpack this. A servant is careful of the consuming power of anger. If you draw back for a moment, and you're just aware there's another group in this crowd. As you move through this, look at Matthew 21 through 23 sometime and read it. And you see the religious leaders of that day. They continue to grow in hate. The opponents of Jesus find everything he does repulsive. If you look at verse 20, chapter 21, verse 14 through 15, it says, Even the things any bystander would see as wonderful... Those things get them good and angry. Listen to verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple. This is after he comes to this um, triumphal entry and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. I have to tell you, be very careful because anger becomes addictive. Bitterness grows strong in the soil of a wounded and an unhealed heart. And the fruit of hatred begins to blossom. And what happens in that is that you see a person and an individual and the things that even you look at that are maybe good, you begin to interpret as being bad. If you begin to start hating someone, if you let anger start to... Well, I shouldn't say that because Christians, it's because you don't hate, right? We've been all taught not to hate. So if you really dislike someone... Or you find yourself avoiding them, or you begin to start, when you think of them, you have anger in your head. 
If any of those signs are present, the hate, and I'll use that word, you feel towards them will begin to distort your perception of that person. And everything they do becomes loathsome and disgusting. I remember when I was in college with a person who began to really just tick me off. And I remember we were in the same house together and we would sit and have breakfast. And you know that the way he chewed his Cheerios bugged me. Anybody had that experience? You know, the way they laugh just bothers you. The way they say a certain word ticks you off. This happened in Jesus' day. They saw what was good and they proclaimed it as bad. His good, they reasoned, had come from a bad and evil source. His motives were obviously sinister. His selfless love that, that, that seemed to everyone to be good was a, really a cover for a very evil and ambitious heart. There's a study. I'm just going to read this because I think it is interesting. I shared this a little bit with the elders. A man named John Gottman talks about the science of trust. He's a, a marriage counselor. He says, scientific, verifiable studies of relationships which were viewed on videotapes, and he uses game theory and all this stuff that's really difficult. So the book itself, he's got a bunch of other books, but this one is a real um, scientific understanding of it. He came, and others came to realize that when you have a perception of someone and anger begins to grow, what they say is you begin to develop a, a negative sentiment order, override. A negative sentiment override. It just means what happens is your feelings towards someone become so strong they override anything they do that might look good or neutral. In negative sentiment override, he writes, in negative sentiments, we have about the relationship, and he's talking specifically about in marriages, and our partner override anything positive our partner might do. We are hyper-vigilant for put-downs. We look to be offended, and we read the worst in what is done. We tend not to notice positive events. He says, Robinson and Price discovered in one of their studies that unhappy couples don't see 50% of the positive things that objective observers see. We tend to distort and see neutral or sometimes even positive things as negative. And we are overly sensitive. The author states people are in negative sentiment override for good reason. It's because the friendship isn't working. We see our partner as our adversary not necessarily as an annoying friend. And they state you can try all kinds of things to move people from negative to positive sentiment override, but it won't work. It won't work unless the fundamental friendship processes are working. If friendship is working, you automatically move to positive sentiment override. And the research shows that you can't change it except by altering the quality of friendship. And I just read that and I thought, it makes perfect sense of this whole triumphal entry. God is incredibly wise. He didn't need science to prove this. He knew the only way that people who felt distant from him, who felt that they were, he was an adversary who was out to get them, he knew that those people who in their pride and their sin would stand opposed to him, their guilt would keep them distant. He knew the only way, the only way he could come and, and build that kind of relationship that would move into a place where your relationship would begin to grow in a very positive way with God was that he had to come and go to a cross and he had to take your sin. He had to call you to a place where you acknowledge the fact that your distance has kept you from him. And when you come to that acknowledgement, he then invites you into a place where it says in Romans 5.1 that you access this through faith. And now we have peace with God. I'm going to ask you just a moment to just bow your head and as the team comes. And I, I'm going to just, I want you to pray through something with me.
I want you to think and I want you to let the Holy Spirit to guide your heart. For some of you, you need to be thinking about your relationship with God. You need to realize that God has loved you so much and He still loves you that He is not coming to punish you. He's not angry with you. The bad things necessarily happening in your life may not be because of Him, but because of your own choices. It may be that just things are happening and God is here. He loves you. He proved it by His love on a cross. You need to begin to understand that He offers you friendship through His life and sacrifice. Now, I want to also invite some of the rest of you to be thinking about this, because you need to be thinking about maybe a marriage partner. You may be needing to think about a child. You may be needing to think about a friend or someone you minister with or someone at work. You need to think about that process that has moved to a place where that person has become so distorted because of the, the hurt and the anger and the things in your heart. And there's only one way that I know that God changes things is He changes your heart and you begin to move to a place where He did with you. You offer grace and you give mercy. And you begin to say, I will call you into a relationship where I will love you in undeserving ways. It may mean you have boundaries still. But it means you won't be at war. So open your heart to Him.